when we found you and, and your podcast, it was like, okay, this is what we should have done the first time. It's like the properties make sense the day you buy them. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1327, 1327. Thanks for joining us today, and I am coming to you from beautiful Dorado Beach, Puerto Rico, here masterminding this week with a few friends. Got to hang out on the beach last night and uh, have beer, football, and fiscal policy with none other than one of our early famous guests on the show, Peter Schiff. Yes, Peter Schiff. <laughs> Saw him in his element, and he has uh, very loudly and famously moved to Puerto Rico to save on taxes. Now, you know on past episodes I've talked about this Puerto Rico tax deal. Thought of moving here myself uh, many, many times over the years, but um, can't quite bring myself to do it every time I come here and visit some friends that, uh, you know, look at, here's the old saying, folks, money always goes where it's treated best. Money always goes where it's treated best. I have a friend here who is a very successful New York real estate attorney who has moved his family to Puerto Rico for the tax incentive, and it is quite a significant incentive, especially when you're coming from a place like the Socialist Republic of New York or the Socialist Republic of California, the two highest tax states in the union. I haven't quite been able to talk myself into this Puerto Rico thing, but at the very least... Get yourself living in a no-income tax state because that'll be, you'll have a huge head start. I mean, I just want you to think about this for a minute, and I know I've harped on it many times over the years, but, you know, if you're in business, say you have your own business, and many of you do, I know, and you are in the competitive marketplace and you're competing with people and companies that are based in a high-tax jurisdiction, and you decide to move from, like I did, California to Florida, and say you're successful as, hey, if you're listening to this show, I know you're successful. And say you are in that really oppressive 13.3% state income tax rate for California. You know, many businesses will talk about how can we grow our business by 13.3% this year, right? That'll be a plan. They'll have meetings about it. They will agonize about it. What do we do? Do we do more marketing? Do we recruit better people? Do we cut pay? Do we do layoffs? Do we uh, come up with a new innovation that really is successful in the market? Should we go out and work on getting more publicity, more attention, increase our market share, do affiliate deals, uh, maybe open a new distribution channel, uh, maybe sell our widgets on Amazon or Etsy or eBay. You know, what do we do to increase business by 13.3%? Well, I've got an easy way for you to do it. Simply move, vote with your feet. Or what if you don't own your own business? 
and you are simply living in the rat race, as many of our clients are, I'd say two-thirds of you are probably in the rat race, so to speak, and you want to build a real estate investment portfolio on the side so you can exit the rat race. What if, I mean, what if you could increase your investment each year by 13.3%? What if you could do that? Think about it. If you earn $300,000 per year, and well, to get the 13.3%, you'd have to earn more than that <laughs> to be in that oppressive tax rate. Say you're in that tax rate. Say you're paying 10% extra state income taxes. This is, we're not talking about federal taxes here. But say you could increase your net by $30,000 per year, 10% of $300,000. That's one extra property you could buy every year and still have maybe $5,000 in change left over. Think about the multiplier effect on your wealth of that over the course of three years, that's three extra properties. Over the course of five years, it's five extra properties. Over the course of 10 years, it's 10 extra properties. Think about how much faster that moves you toward your goals. This is not a small thing, this tax thing, okay? So at least the state income taxes, take care of that. I took care of that by moving to Florida. But you could do even better by moving to a place like Puerto Rico. <laughs> and that's if you're an American. And I understand we have listeners in 189 countries worldwide. So different things apply to all of you in different jurisdictions. But that's pretty amazing. Well, I'm here with uh, one of my friends. And Bob is a successful real estate attorney. And you're going to hear from him on future episodes as we talk about something really unique that he's doing. But we're going to save that one for the future. But today... I just want to uh, have him talk a, a little bit about the things he has learned as a real estate attorney working with big hedge funds and all kinds of high flyers in New York and then now moving to Puerto Rico just a little over, well, less than a year ago, actually. Just talk about some of those differences. I thought you'd be intrigued by it. And our guest today will be the senior architect for the Obama administration of none other than the, I think, falsely named Opportunity Zones, okay? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a bit of a cynic about the Opportunity Zones, but you're going to hear the main architect of that whole plan for the Obama administration on the show after we do the uh, intro portion here today, and I think you'll find that to be fascinating. It was an absolutely fascinating discussion about how they do this community engineering, what it means for gentrification, just a super fascinating interview that I did uh, just over a week ago with him. So we'll play that for you after this, but let me first welcome my friend Bob Diamond, who is uh, here to just share a little of the stuff he's learned in, oh, I think over 30 years being a real so estate I've attorney, been right? I've licensed as an attorney since 1995. Wow. And it's been all real estate. I was a real estate investor from 1989, so before I was a real estate attorney. And I've continued investing the whole time, so I do both. And I've certainly seen it all. And I have to say, when you get into the larger commercial deals, the level of scrutiny and detail you have to go into is multiplied a oh. hundredfold. I mean, just, That's you know, I've uh, told the listeners that uh, over the course of my career for my companies, I've uh, leased and built out seven office spaces, just as a tenant, not an owner, okay? And those office leases are anywhere between 70 and 130 pages long. Yes. I mean, just the lease itself, and that's just being a tenant, not an owner. I can imagine the cost of paying attorneys to draft those leases when you're the owner is 
absolutely insane. I mean, I'm sure they spent fifty, eighty thousand dollars just on lease drafting fees. When I I did a lot of the leases in in New York for a famous drugstore chain, every lease negotiation took six to eight months and cost fifty to eighty thousand dollars. Yeah, just and that's the negotiation after the document exists, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair, we we had their base document, and a lot of the arguments were over whether we were going to use the landlord's base document or our own. And when you get into a big portfolio, you've got to have consistency with the way the leases are because otherwise they can't be administered. You know, if you're trying to administer a portfolio of 400 drugstores, you can't have your leasing staff deal with 400 different forms of leases. It's impossible. They can't actually do it. So we would spend the first two months bickering over whose form of lease we would start with because we had to. And, you know, there's millions of dollars involved. There's There's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake. And the reason leases get so long, by the way, is something happens. Mm-hmm. Someone slips and falls, someone sees a mouse, someone you know, gets food poisoning, right. and the landlord ends up with a problem. Yeah. And they say, oh, we better address that in the lease. But so by the way, the let, let, me, let me say something that's always struck me as is kind of odd. I guess it has to be that, this way. But when you're dealing with, you know, landlords always hear the horror stories about the slip and fall, quote unquote, yes. right? It's sort of odd to me, and I, I did a show recently on civil forfeiture, where, awful you know, thing. yeah, terrible, an it's absolutely thing. an abuse of government uh, power for sure. But what's kind of interesting is, why is it that the property owner is responsible for everything that happens on the property? Some of this stuff is so completely unrelated to them. I could, you know, of course they're responsible for if there's criminal activity on the property, they're probably becoming responsible for like microwave radiation from cell towers. Soon, here's a prediction. Here's a Jason Hartman prediction. You ready for this one? You know, the law is something that always gets extended and expanded, right? Yes. They take one law and they like expand on it, expand on it, expand on it, Bob. I predict that soon landlords, and you know, I'm talking about a commercial setting, could actually become responsible for what is said on a property. Words. Yes, I could see it expanding that way. You know, like, I mean, not, you not just... that person on the property, yeah, yeah. And, and you could have predicted that they would say something that would hurt somebody, or the, rape the, somebody, the, or... That would offend somebody, right? Yeah. If someone is, like, we've all heard about these things where, you know, a speaker is invited to speak on a college campus, right? A speaker with conservative viewpoints, and then, uh, of course, the wacky left will shut them down, right? Yes because uh, any means they don't want to have a dialogue. They just want to have a monologue, right? And so, you know, soon, I bet, you know, if Mark Stein, or pick your name, uh, you know, comes and speaks on a property, if someone in the audience is offended by their words, they will sue the owner of the amphitheater or something. You know, I bet it will I, I, I could absolutely see it. And yeah. the problem is, is essentially lawyers looking for people with deep pockets that they can recover from. So you want to drag in an insurance company if you can, a landlord if you can, because you stand a better chance of having a collectible judgment. Right. And you know the law has it keeps expanding responsible parties. Yeah. It's really reflective of the tenor of a lot of the conversation in the country. Yeah. Which is it's rich people's fault, whatever it is. Right. And people who are not successful, nothing's their fault. They're a victim. Mm-hmm. What do they have? Intersectionality just means you have you're a minority and you're gay and you're short. 
Uh -huh. or, so or intersectionality means multiple immutable characteristics, right? Well, it's, it's multiple a, disadvantages. It's a discrimination so lawsuit. It's like right? if you're yeah. if you're bald, maybe you're less attractive than someone with hair. So then that's one thing. And if you're also a minority, yeah. that's another thing. Oh, and then you've got two counts against you. Right. And then you're a woman, so you've got three counts yeah, against right, you. Right. So all of a sudden, everybody else has to pay you a guaranteed basic minimum income. The point is you have this like expansion of ideas, right? And uh, one of the things we were talking about last night, it, I said, you know, I used to sit on a lot of boards for charities and do that. For years I did it. And I just kind of got frustrated with it after a while because what I realized is that the mission, and I'm not saying this of every charity, of course, there are very good charitable organizations out there, so I'm not faulting it. I'm just saying this is human nature. The mission of any organization is to expand its size and power and ensure its longevity, yeah, which is that's people. Which is self—it's the self-preservation instinct that applies to people. It applies to organizations too, which are made up of people. Even when the organization is no longer needed. Yes. So, if you cure cancer, do you need cancer charities anymore? Well, no, right? So. What's the incentive, right? Is the incentive to actually find a cure or to just nib around the edges, right? You know, that, that becomes the thing, you know? Things expand. I guess yes, that's the point, that's right? the nature. That's yeah. The government expands, keeps yeah. expanding. Yeah. It always like gets every bigger. It never gets smaller. strives yeah. to expand and grow. You're right. Yeah. Job yeah. of the hut. But what you said last night in your answer to that is interesting. When we're talking about government versus the private sector, you said something that was really, really critical. In the private sector, there's two ways you can get ahead. Right. So you can cheat, which gets you in trouble eventually and gets you really rough. Or you Ho find Hopefully it gets you in trouble. But well, yeah, not always. I, I mean, you, you don't <laughs> sleep well at night anyway. Right. And if you do get caught, you're really sunk. Or you can do what most companies try to do, which is provide a desirable, even great service or great product. And then you make a lot of money. And I would say that, that was an example of that would be Google. An example of that would be Apple. I mean, why do I have an Apple phone and an Apple computer? Because they work great. When they update, they continue to but, work. But these companies are not without their abuses. They're not. <laughs> Especially They're not Google. Perfect. Apple's much better. But, but also yeah. Google. Why do so many people use Gmail? Because yeah. it works really well and it's consistent. Are yeah. they perfect? No. They, they're bad actors in, in some respects. Of course they are. But that's the way that they've expanded. So the difference, though, with the private sector versus government expanding, how do you get ahead? That's how you get ahead in the private sector. You either cheat and hopefully you'll get caught. Okay, or you produce something of great value. Yes. Okay, that's a legitimate way to get ahead. You two sort ways. of earn it. Right. At least in the second way, you earn it right. by being desirable. So how do you get ahead in government? In the government, you, you promise to give A money for A's problem from B. Today, it's, you, you promise to give the poor and needy and helpless money from the rich. Rob, don't Rob Peter to anyway. PayPal. Yeah. Right, and, and they can do it legally. They say, give me the money. They promise that, and whether they deliver or not, they don't really care. Because if they don't deliver it, then they blame some third party. Right. It's the, the bad people, it's the big government, it's something else other than them. Basically buying votes with other people's money. Of course they are. They, and they rob, you know, like Margaret Thatcher said, the problem with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's money. But the difference is with government, there's no free market because you don't really get to sh very easily, at least, shop around for government. Nope. If you don't like, you get two uh, choices. if you don't like an Android phone, you can buy an iPhone. You get a choice there. There's a choice in the marketplace, or you could buy the new Motorola Razor, right? You have choices, but with government, you don't have choice. You're you also get... limited too by by time of choice. Like I could throw my, away my iPhone today and go buy a Samsung, mm -hmm. right? Same day. I get to participate in an election occasionally. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I can't just say I don't like what that guy did. Let's fire him. 
I mean, you know, you can take radical approaches to try to do that, but basically it's not doable. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, so tell us a little, a couple more pointers on, you know, just what you learned as being a real estate so, attorney so for so many So a couple years. things. So the good, really talented commercial investors that I worked with, one thing that they all did to a person is, is they followed Warren Buffett's advice that investing is the one thing where you can stand there at the plate, the pitcher throws, throws balls over your plate, these are potential deals, you can stand there all day. There's no three strikes and you're out. You can watch 100 balls come by and decide only to swing, swing at the 101st and you're still on the bay, on, at bat. The only problem is if you don't swing at good pitches, you miss deals. So you have a opportunity cost, potentially. You do, but you have to watch your mindset because the good guys always have the mindset they pursue the deals that really look good. Where I see people make the mistake, and my smaller investor clients who sometimes struggle, especially at the beginning, they don't have the patience and they don't have the deal sourcing. Because what you've got to do is you've got to source enough deals to look at a lot of deals mm -hmm. and understand the market you're working in, understand what's really out there, and not swing at the first thing just because it, it's always understand there'll always be a new one coming in. By the way, I don't want to forget, and uh, one of our team members just reminded me, and you heard that, you overheard that call. She said to Jason, you've got to tell the listeners that we have some fantastic new home inventory, which is very hard to source. And uh, we have been sourcing some good new home inventory lately. So check it out, talk to your investment counselor, go to jasonhartman.com, several different markets, be sure to connect with us. We yeah, have I overheard some, really, some of your markets yeah. and really good, strong markets. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I was just, I wasn't listening, but just I'm sitting next to you so you can help me hear it. Right. And those are good, strong markets. Yeah. And deal sourcing is difficult to find good deals. And like when you do what you do, which is find good deals that people can look at and consider, that is so much money, time, and effort for people to source their own deals. It's a big part of the work. That's yes, why huge part of the investors, work. unless they're really in this kind of full-time they need a team to aggregate yes. and, and vet and source those deals that's for them. Such and, value. And, that, and that's what we well, do. Well, that's the foundation to a good investment. Yeah. Just to start with, if you have a bad property to start with, yeah. you just tried to build a pie out of rotten fruit. Right. And yeah. it's very difficult, if not impossible. And occasionally, actually one of, one of the times I see people make mistakes in a market, you get a quickly rising market. And what they do is they, they think everything's rising. So it's like, I got to get in, I got to get in. And they buy junk. Yeah. And then when the market cracks, they're left with valueless things. And that concept is most pronounced in the cyclical markets, where you have these incredible highs and these really ugly lows. We're talking about California? Yeah, well, California, New York, South Florida, you know, yes. the, all those uh, the expensive northeastern markets around the world. We're talking about Dubai, Paris, London, Hong Kong, et cetera, et cetera. So those markets are where people get that mania. And remember, my commandment number 21 of the Ten Commandments, I know that math doesn't work, but I keep adding more, is thou shalt not invest in manias. Do not invest in a mania, okay? Unless you just want to purely speculate. I think part of the key that I've seen consistently among successful investors is they have strong deal sourcing stores looking at deals. Mm -hmm. And they do act when they see a good one. Right. But they're, not, they're not inert objects. They do act. But they wait for a good one. They don't force the deal. Right. Another way to put it. They don't say, I've just got to do something. I'm sitting on the sideline for you know nine weeks and my plan says I'm going to buy 18 houses this year. Yeah. Just wait. because the, the money is not burning a hole in their pocket, right? Because right? yeah. you're, 
Exactly. Yeah. You can't have that because when you get desperate like that, you do a bad deal and then you're stuck with it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, absolutely. and you can't really get out of it unless you can find a bigger sucker than you. And and how do you no know? Plan. That's the, called the greater fool theory. I've talked about it very much. And how do you know you have a good deal? You measure by the rent to value ratio. That's the first most important metric. Okay, so anything else on the real estate thing? I want to switch to Puerto Rico, and we got to get to our guest. Sure, on investing. So it's it's good strong deal sourcing and good strong team members. Mm-hmm. I, I think that when you when you choose your team members choose people with track records of success, not just because they're your cousin who's unemployed or to someone else who needs some work. I've had, in my experience with untangling partnership disputes, a lot of times it's someone that comes in, doesn't know what they're doing, partners up with someone else and doesn't know what they're doing, and pretty soon they're fighting with two people not knowing what they're doing. Right. And yeah. you just, you have to educate yourself and stay in control of the deal. But the educated person needs to be in control of the deal. It needs to be. Good point. And on the partnership note, you've heard me repeat my late grandmother saying many times, uh, she said to me many years ago, brilliant wisdom, Jason, the hardest ship to sail is a partnership. <laughs> Isn't that good? I have another one too. You know, people only fight when there's money. Yeah. When a deal goes down and goes bad, nobody fights because there's nothing to fight over. Mm-hmm. When things are successful and they're suddenly like, you know, Jason, you really didn't do that much. You just brought the money. Yeah. But you so, take a smaller cut. Right. Yeah, and let's all of a sudden they're renegotiating and they fight when there's money. Yeah. Which is interesting. So if you're successful, that's the time you're actually going to need the mm-hmm. partnership agreement. Yeah. Yeah. So on the partnership thing, just remember it's that old biblical concept of being equally yoked. You need to be equally yoked with your partner. Now, equal does not mean the same yoking. Someone might bring the money, someone might bring the deal. Someone might bring the expertise, someone might bring the deal. You know, it doesn't mean you're putting in the same thing, but you're both contributing something. Yes. And a lot of people go into partnerships with a partner that they just kind of want some company in a way. And that's a, it's a problem. They're not really they, contributing. If they come yeah. in, half of what they'll do is a problem. They'll make bad decisions, they'll give bad advice, and they're not productive partners. Yeah. And you don't want that. The, and an interesting dynamic is sometimes the guy or woman who brings the money, they want to then control the deal even though they don't know real estate. Like if someone would say, you know, they're a surgeon who's a very brilliant surgeon, right. brilliant in medicine, yeah. that doesn't mean they know anything about business. And you get the other person that's a real estate person, the real estate person needs to make the decisions at the end of the day. Yeah. You can consult with your partner, but at the end of the day, that the deal has to be in writing that that real estate person makes the decisions. Otherwise, you can end up with some bad things because people believe in the golden rule. They think he who has the gold rules, yeah. and then you just end up in a fight. That's right. not good. That's yeah. not productive. Yep. Good the stuff. other thing that I do that's, that's interesting in partnerships of my own, and I advise clients, do a trial balloon. Mm-hmm. Do a deal together. See how it goes. Don't dive in, you know. Yeah, right. Date before, date before you're married. Yeah. You know, and if yeah. it doesn't, if it doesn't work out, you know, with me personally, I've released properties like, you know, you take the property. Mm-hmm. Here, I put ten grand and give me my ten grand back. You have the property; it's yeah. great. And I just take it as a learning lesson. Go, go run with it. Exactly. You got to know when to cut your losses. That's the other rule. Yes. Okay. Hey, we got to get to our guest, but just you, you wrote down a couple of figures here. Yes. Yeah, so about, you're talking about a three hundred thousand dollar income, and so let's say a, a three hundred thousand dollar income and say Florida or Texas where there's no state income tax, let's say at a 34% federal tax rate, you're gonna pay about 102,000 in taxes. In Puerto Rico, you'd pay 4% taxes, so you'd pay $12,000 instead of 102,000. So on a $300,000 income, you'd have $90,000 more every year. Now, that means you could buy 
three or four properties every year extra in addition to what you're already you doing. You pay off your mortgage yeah, on right. your house. You yeah. could pay off mortgages. No, we don't like properties. paying off mortgages. Yeah. You could, we like the debt, but okay. You could buy extra properties, yeah. do all kinds of things. Right. And the point is, it's like reverse, taxes are like reverse amortization. It's mm -hmm. just, it's such a headwind on your investing. Mm -hmm. And you know, even if we look at this, we gained about a third of the income, yeah. cash in the pocket. But that's not without some requirements. You need to say that. So you know, you've got to, I mean, it's complicated, but you've got to be in Puerto Rico a certain amount of the time. I'll give, I'll to, give you the, the you know, bare bones. So you have to live here at least half the year. Okay. It's 183 days in tropical paradise, and you really do have to live here. They keep track of it. And you have to apply for the program. It's going to cost, realistically, by the time we're done, 15 grand mm -hmm. with lawyers and, and things like that and accountants and setting it up properly. You do have to give $10,000 a year to the charity of your choice. I'm sorry, $5,000 a year to the charity of your choice. For next year, they're bumping that to 10000 So you get to choose the charity. It's wonderful. I didn't know there was a charitable component to yeah, it. Yeah, so, so I, I give to a bunch of charities because I have all this extra money left over. So I, I've really increased my charitable giving. I've got an orphanage. I've got a lost dog or like a no-kill shelter. Yeah. Boys and girls clubs, Boy Scouts, it's everybody in their cousin. My, my, my dog just perked up when you said that and thought, oh, that's nice. Yeah. So it, one of the guys here in the development heads that's got like 200 dogs in it. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of satos, which are, are loose dogs here in the island. But anyway. I, I got to share something that Peter Schiff said last night that I thought was really interesting. Okay. He was kind of ranting last night on the beach, uh, you know, where the sun is setting and we're on this beautiful beach, uh, you know, right by the Ritz-Carlton here. You know, you, you guys had the, all the catered food out there and the drinks and the football games. We do were, tailgating, right? Yeah, I think. yeah it, was, it was, everybody was tailgating in their golf carts on the sand <laughs> on the beach. And With a professional chef. My, yeah, 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 it was great. And, and my dog is running around the beach, no leash. I mean, she was just having no a great problem. time. No leash, yeah, no yeah, problem. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's not, not the Gestapo like it is uh, back in California. He said something really interesting. He said, since he moved to Puerto Rico, he is filing the most honest tax returns he's ever filing. Now, what's interesting about that is this, is that the tax return becomes, there's an incentive to be more dishonest when taxes are higher. Yes. Because the deduction is higher. So if you can write something off and your tax rate is a combined 50% tax rate, that's real money. But if you're only paying 4% tax in the first place, you start to spend in a more legitimate way. I don't, I, like, you know? since I pay 4% taxes, I don't do anything because of the tax effect. Right, yeah. I do absolutely so, zero. Oh, so, the other thing, so, too, so, so high, high, high taxes encourages malinvestment. Okay, that's what I yes, want to say. High taxes, in, yeah, right, it misallocates capital. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say investment income is taxed at 0%. Wow, so capital gains, in other words, right? No, zero. Yeah. No, like if you're a trader, you trade stocks, trade yeah. gold. Yeah. That's zero percent. Is that why all your neighbors are hedge fund managers? <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, it's, and it's because you can trade and you don't have that headwind because otherwise you could be trading all year. You can make gains on 100 trades, losses on 200, and you can still owe taxes. Yeah, right. It's interesting. This is quite a desirable deal. So if you want more information, check out my Jet Setter show. I've done several interviews on the Puerto Rico tax deal. It is pretty amazing. The other thing I'll give people, it's by contract good until 2035. Till 2035. And there even you if go. they enact the asset tax, it won't affect us. So if Elizabeth Warren wins, 
Uh, I will cry, yeah. but I will cry. I'll be like, I'll be crying for you, Argentina. I will be crying for America, <laughs> but it won't affect my bottom line. Yeah. <laughs> You're exempt down here. That's great. Okay, hey, let's get to the first part of our inter interview uh, with the, the chief architect for the Obama administration of the Opportunity Zone legislation. So uh, we'll get to the first part of that today. We'll have part two tomorrow, and uh, here we go. It's my pleasure to welcome Steve Glickman. He is the former senior economic advisor to Barack Obama, co-founder and former CEO and executive director of the Economic Innovation Group. He is the chief architect of the Opportunity Zone program. Steve, welcome. How are you? Thanks. Doing great. It's good to have you. Where are you located? I'm in D.C., but I'm, in, I'm on the road quite a bit these days uh, around the country trying to figure out what's going on in all these different Opportunity Zone communities. I understand. I understand. So the Opportunity Zone is quite interesting. It's uh, sparked a lot of interest from real estate developers more than investors. You know, it's somewhat complicated for a strict investor. Uh, you really have to be willing to do development. How many Opportunity Zones are there around the country? There are 8,766 Opportunity Zones spread out uh, across every state, six U.S. territories, and Washington, D.C., and when you architected the program, how did you pick the opportunity zones? I mean, first of all, that's quite a few of them, and they're little pockets, aren't they? Uh, like, for example, give us a sense of, of, of geography and size. What are the largest opportunity zones by, I don't know, square miles, I guess, and then the smallest? So opportunity zones are made up of census tracts. So the size of opportunity zones are within a pretty narrow range by population. So they're typically between two and 8,000 people. And in urban areas, that can be very small. That can be a one square block or two square blocks or more. But in rural areas, that could be hundreds of miles. So it all depends on what kind of geography you live in in the U.S. To sort of get back to the first part of your question, though, lucky for me, I didn't have to pick the zones. The way the legislation was set up was that the federal government set a baseline economic standard, something it calls low-income communities, which are places that are both at 80% of median income of that state or area and have at least a 20% poverty rate. And then it was left up to the governors to pick among those places 25% of those communities as opportunity zones. And the net of that is that opportunity zones now cover about 11% of the country. Fantastic. What constitutes, uh, you know, I guess a good opportunity for a real estate developer in one of these zones? I mean, with 8,000 plus zones, how does a real estate developer pick and figure out where to invest? First of all, I'd say the, the program is much broader than just real estate. This is a program that you can make investments into any kind of asset class that can essentially, too, right? Uh, yeah, that can essentially take private equity capital. And you're seeing that around the country as well. Now, real estate, of course, is the most active asset class because it, by definition, is geographically or place-based. And because there's you know, a long history of using tax incentives to invest in real estate, the most active part of real estate you've seen in the marketplace has been multifamily, basically investing in apartment buildings around the country. They make up just over half of commercial real estate investments, according to CBRE. But you're also seeing investments in industrial buildings uh, in uh, many facilities and, of course, in, in offices. And increasingly, you're seeing this in the business side as well. 
Um, so we're seeing companies that are using opportunity zones to build and finance entertainment companies and film studios to build renewable energy and telecom infrastructure and to support franchises and other business models that are sort of organically rooted to place. And how is the program working out so far? It's We're, we're in the pretty early stages. I, I guess maybe the predecessor to that question should be, when did it begin? But then give us an update if you will. There are several different you know, start dates you could refer to. I mean, functionally speaking, we're really still within the first year of the program. Officially, the program was passed into law at the very end of 2017 as part of the uh, largely Republican-passed tax rule, although Opportunity Zones, its origins are in bipartisan legislation, about half supported by Democrats and Republicans. Governors then selected the actual census tracts in their states that would become Opportunity Zones in June of 2018, of last year. But the Treasury Department didn't uh, write the rules of Opportunity Zones until really April of this year. They released two tranches of regulations uh, last October and this April that make up about 250 pages of regulations. And it was really as of April of this year that you saw the market take off. So we're really just about six months into the program. And by the end of this year, I think you'll see a lot more activity. In fact, we've seen quite a bit of activity already. There's some early data that show there are roughly 300 Opportunity Zone funds in the market that are targeting about $65 billion of capital. And they've raised about, on average, about 15% of that target. So this program is, is responsible for roughly in the realm of about $10 billion of equity investment um, across the country. Okay, so... I mean, those numbers, they sound big, but in terms of the overall real estate game, they're actually pretty small, right? Do you have a projection or a thought in terms of how big this will grow, how much capital will flow into Opportunity Zones ultimately? Yes, but let me give you just a sense of context for that $10 billion yeah, number. Right, right. Yeah, please do. That's that's always the question. You know, People throw these numbers around and they sound big, but the question is always compared to what, right? Yeah, <laughs> well, so... Yeah. Opportunity zones come out of a, a, a long history in this country of, of doing place-based incentives. And historically, these programs have been quite small. The, the largest program in this space, uh, and the most recent one, which was now about 20 years old, is called the New Markets Tax Credit. And that program is responsible for about $3.5 billion a year in equity going into these communities. So in the first year of this brand new program, you've seen three times as much equity been deployed already. And frankly, that's an incomplete number. That's that's just one accounting firm's ability to track uh, funds. Much of the opportunity zone investment in this country is being done through single deals, both business and real estate deals around the country. So that number is probably much larger. So I gave you what I think is a very conservative number. I think this program will realistically be in the range of uh, $50 billion a year when it's fully up and running in the next you know, couple of years or so. And again, to give you a sense of scale of that, that's about the size of the entire venture capital industry. Uh-huh. Okay, okay, good. You know, you didn't mention, interestingly, because maybe it's, a, it, well, it's obviously a different type of program, but we sure were very involved in the Go Zone. I'm sure you're familiar with that. And sure. I know there was also the Liberty Zone, uh, we weren't involved with that, but the Go Zone for quite a while we thought was a pretty great program. Then, as happens with a lot of tax incentive-based things, you know, and I don't want to be political here, but the tax incentive kind of starts to distort the market after a while. 
and the economics sort of fail to be the reason that just the pure economics and then everybody's like money is flowing for tax benefits and then things get a little out of whack ultimately i just find that to be true over and over again in life and so the go zone stopped being interesting to us in the latter parts of it but but at first it i thought it was pretty great uh, any comments on that? In general, when you look at zone-based programs, the thing that has ultimately made them unsuccessful has been two big factors. One, their ability to scale, both geographically and in terms of the types of projects you can do. And two, uh, has been their flexibility. This program is unique in that it covers such a big part of the country, much of which is still untouched by capital investment in this program. So there are Still, tons of undervalued assets, the downtowns of entire cities that have now been designated as opportunity zones that can take in billions of dollars of investment in this program. And that doesn't even talk about the business investment sector, where essentially if you move a business or create a new business into an opportunity zone, it now becomes an opportunity zone investable business where you know your returns on the course of 10 years can grow tax-free. And so I think the potential here is far more uncapped than any previous example of uh, place-based investing. We know that the total you know, market of capital gains that you can potentially tap into is $6 trillion, both among individual investors and corporate investors. So you're talking a huge amount of capacity that this program still has to absorb. And you know we're never going to get anywhere close to that. So I don't think you'll see the same natural cap uh, in this program, as you've seen in, in other attempts at doing place-based investing. Right. And I know we've got to wrap it up with your part, and we'll talk to your associate for a few minutes here in a moment. But I, I kind of intentionally didn't ask you to explain the program, because we've done several episodes on that previously. But, you know, since you are the chief architect of it, I'd probably be remiss to not ask you if you wanted to tell our listeners about some of the highlights of the program or anything like that, or or just anything else you want us to know before you go? Sure. Well, I always find like uh, a little context is helpful in, in helping to understand why this came about at all. And I'll provide a, a very shortened version of it. If you believe, for example, climate change is the biggest external problem facing this country, the biggest internal problem is this question around geographic inequality. The fact that for the really the first time in our recent history, economic growth during an economic recovery has only accumulated in a very small handful of cities in America. And that has huge ramifications for um, local economies across the country, for health outcomes for people, and ultimately for our, our economic and political system. This is the first attempt at its type to create a, an entirely new marketplace out of place-based investing that's designed way different than any other type of program. And it's all tied to appreciation. So this is a program that to be an investor, it starts with having capital gains. You're able to defer the immediate taxes you owe on having sold a stock or a piece of real estate or a piece of art to have gotten those capital gains. But the really big benefit and the really big value for communities is that it aligns the incentives between investors and communities to invest for a very long period of time. For, so for investors who are uh, who stay invested in communities for 10 years or longer, any profits that they see from that investment at the end of that time period, they can earn tax-free. And it's the only part of the tax code that operates that way. It's the only way to get a full step up in your capital gains bill without having to die first, which is a, a benefit of the program. It's the only way you can go from 
capital gains in business investment to real estate or from real estate to business. So it's a it's a very unique and very powerful incentive that's much more akin to like the charitable contribution deduction in its scale than it is to any previous program. And so this is a big experiment right now around the country of whether this can align the long-term strategic interest of communities and their leaders like mayors and county executives around the country uh, with investors and with the need that the federal government has to start to dramatically change the way economic growth is working in America. And I think we're going to get to the the scale and the type of activities and the type of communities where we're going to start to see really powerful transformative changes uh, happening around America. But as we mentioned at the beginning, we're in the first inning here, and and I think people have to be willing to be patient. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out, because some skeptics would say that this will just lead to more gentrification as it upgrades these areas, just pushing prices up and affordability down and pushing the people that ostensibly is to help, pushing them out of the neighborhood again. The kind of, you know, like look at Oakland, California, as all the rich tech money has flown in there. I mean, are there any safeguards against that? Or is it going to have that kind of gentrification effect? I mean, gentrification, some people love it, others hate it, right? It depends what side of the economic pie you're on. Uh, but just maybe a comment on that before you go. There are a lot of guardrails, but let me let me start with Again, the premise here, most communities across the country in most cities don't look like Oakland. They don't look like the Bay Area. They don't look like Los Angeles or New York. And the Urban Institute, which, you know, studies gentrification very closely, evaluated all of the opportunities in America and that less than 4% of them are at any near-term risk of gentrification. So this question of gentrification is a problem that very small number of communities face. It doesn't mean communities don't face displacement, but it's much more common for economic distressed areas to see that displacement come from a lack of capital than not too many, because you start to lose your most talented, well-connected, capable people to other cities because there are just no job or business opportunities in your local community. Now, for certain cities, this is, a, this is a, a big challenge, and there are the same guardrails you have now in that the sort of investments that people are really concerned about in the gentrification conversation are ones that are already very closely controlled by local governments through the use of permitting and entitlements and other land use that dictate what kind of real estate projects can go in and, and what the strings have to be attached to get approved. This program doesn't change any of that. It just provides access to a new form of capital that would have never existed to make a number of projects that were never viable, viable again. And it's really, you know, created to target the places like Detroit and the South Side Chicago and Cincinnati and Cleveland and Birmingham and Erie, Pennsylvania, which are all active in this marketplace, whose downtowns are are empty. And they need to start to rebuild these 50-year-old bones into modern communities so that businesses will take stock there and, and start creating the businesses that will lead to real economic growth. Yeah, it's it's really quite interesting. I know we've got to wrap it up, but I'd love to talk with you sometime about how does one sit down and architect a program like this? I mean, just the central planning, if you will, of it is uh, pretty complicated because there are always these intended and unintended consequences to these things. And it's just so hard to determine how things will really play out in real life. I'd love to have you back on the show to just talk about how you you take a blank sheet of paper and 
and figure something like this out. It's it's pretty amazing, you know. It really is. So I got to hand it to you. Well, I'd be happy to happy to come on and I and just to give a really short answer to that question. The way we dealt with that complication, and you know, it's unclear whether we how well we figured it all out, was by decentralizing the execution of this program as much as possible putting governors in charge of picking the zones instead of the federal government, empowering investors to decide on what projects they were going to invest in, making it a real marketplace that tied long-term profitability with economic growth in communities. And that's controversial. It's philosophically a real debate between how people view the use of private capital and the role of government in economic development. But I think the one thing that was clear to us is that whatever the government has tried so far hasn't worked. For 50 years, most of the communities we're talking about that are now distressed have been distressed over the last four or five decades. And we have to try yeah. something new. And we're in a place now where government is broke and you need to tap into all of the success private investors have had in the market and try to engineer a new marketplace where they're naturally giving, uh, making their next investment in some of these places. And it may not work. But creating that decentralized approach is the way we dealt with having to figure out how to solve all of those problems from Washington. Very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, before you go, is there any website you want to give out or anything like that? And we'll talk to your associate. Peter and I, I'm sure he'll talk about this a bit more, are working with through an entity called Lighthouse.1, which is a, basically a new approach at tying um, impact-oriented capital, particularly capital in areas uh, like the Bay Area, which have uh, access to an enormous amount of capital gains, with projects around the country that are able to be transformative in communities. And so we're uh, you know, on the hunt for those projects and those type of investors that have shared that kind of mindset that are aligned with you know, the whole goal of, of why this program was created. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, we appreciate it. And uh, we will uh, go over and talk with your associate, Peter Hirschberg, and um, hear what he's up to and talk about his new book, Maker Sounds City. Sounds amazing. Happy to come on any time. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, hartmanmedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own, and if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.